gang it's uh, tuesday november 3rd also what is known in america as election day and before i say anything else before we do anything else just take a deep breath <sighs> everything is going to be okay really everything is going to be okay uh I, i'm not going to spend time today primarily talking about the election and being yet another pastor that has some great nugget of wisdom to tell you about how you should vote i'm not going to echo uh what facebook does to you every time that you get on facebook which is to be almost assaulted with reminders that it's time to vote no no i this this is not this is not the purpose of today this is not the purpose of our gathering together the purpose of our gathering together is to gather around the word of god am i right or am i right i'm right we're gathering around the word of god folks but um but i am going to say a few things because i know that for most of us it is something that just sort of is heavy on our minds it's been heavy on our minds for months and so i want to say very few a very few things right up front number one uh, if you live in this country and you are watching the election happen today whether you participate in it or not as a voter um enjoy the privilege that it is that we get to be involved in this process it's still a fairly new thing in human history for the average joe citizen you and i with no particular power of our own so to speak no we don't have to be wealthy we don't have to have connections in order to pick our leadership no you can be anybody and you get to be a part of the process and you get to you get to see what goes on in this country and thanks be to god we have always had peaceful transitions of power whether that happens today or whether it's an extension of the current president uh in office it is a privilege still that we get to live in a place where we get to live in a republican democracy it's something that is still pretty pretty new to the world and so enjoy that privilege yes i know there's anxiety yes i know there's stress but that leads to the second thing i want to say to you um recognize that this day election day comes in at least before the face of god and attached to the scriptures comes with a lot of freedom the scriptures number one don't tell you you have to vote you don't you don't have to you get to it's a privilege but it also doesn't say who you must vote for it just doesn't the scriptures do not compel your conscience to do something one way or the other with this christian you are free you really are free i know i know i'm in the minority of voices out there within Christendom, and this happens every four years, that wants to compel your conscience, that wants to bind your conscience to do something today. But it's just not true. You don't have to do anything. It's indeed a privilege, like I said. But you're not sinning if you don't get involved, if you don't do it. Okay, please know that. If you don't believe me, please happily show me the verse in Scripture. Even one, I'll just take one, that says we must vote or for that matter that we must vote a certain way if you cannot then at best you are inferring something now you can say the scriptures command us to be good citizens true enough but there's many many ways oh neighbor that you can display good citizenship 
and it is certainly not limited to or just found in the way one votes. I know, might be controversial, but scripturally accurate. My job is not to bind your conscience, but to free your conscience in Christ and to only bind your conscience to that which Christ teaches. Number three, recognize that whatever happens today, folks, it really is temporal. It really is temporal. I know, I know what you hear and what you have been hearing is that this is the most unprecedented election in our lifetimes. Um, no, it's not. There's plenty of precedented before today. It's happened before, and Lord willing, it'll happen again. That you, You're going to be told that what happens today will change everything. Eh, maybe, but based on, you know, 200 plus, well over 200 years of our, our country going through, by the way, periods of much more tumult than we're in right now. And frankly, elections that were much more ugly than the election we're in right now. If you're a student of history, you know this. Go back to the election of 1800. Oh my gosh. But I set that aside. I'm not here to talk about history. I'm just here to say, recognize whatever happens is temporal. It is. It's temporal. And fourthly, which relates to our passage today, recognize that ultimately your true king is in charge. I love the proverb that talks about the king's heart being like water in God's hands, that he just sort of steers it to whichever way he wants to go. God is going to be on his throne. He is going to, the, he ultimately is the one that has the final say. One of the crazier things to me is how often Christians uh, absolutely with full-throated uh, assurance and joy in many other spheres of their life will claim God's sovereignty over all aspects of life, but that when it comes to uh, election time, suddenly we lose that focus. We suddenly forget that indeed that's still true, that God is sovereign. He is king. He is Lord of Lords, folks. And don't let anybody convince you otherwise. And that relates to our passage today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. It's the epistle text for this Sunday's series of lectionary passages. And in some ways, it's kind of appropriate for what we're talking about today. Uh, now, in the context here, Paul is dealing with a church in Thessaloniki that has had some members die. And there are questions about what will happen to these people that have died. Uh, are they going to raise again? Um, are they with the Lord? Uh, what, what's the deal? Where did they go? And there are some that are even saying that, well, no, they're not going to go to heaven and it's kind of done. That's even a teaching that's kind of spreading in the church that, that Jesus's coming has already happened or something. Well, Paul, says he doesn't want them to be uninformed, but he wants to give them the truth. And so here's what we read in verses 13 through 18. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. It's another way of saying dead. And isn't that a wonderful uh, sort of way that the Christian church views death? That even as we refer to it as our great enemy and indeed hate it, uh, as Jesus did, by the way, and we get angry at it, as Jesus did, by the way, good. Nevertheless, we also recognize that it is mere sleep until the day that we awake in the presence of God. 
But he says this, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have, or, or as others do who have no hope. Now, first things first, you have often heard this passage quoted, the second part of it. Uh, you were not to grieve as others do who have no hope. And sometimes this verse that's meant to bring great comfort has actually been used as a club to spiritually hit you over the head. It's an amazing thing how we're able to do this as human beings. But look at the context here. Paul's not saying that we don't grieve at all when death comes or else if that's the case, well, Jesus sinned against that command because when he comes across Lazarus's tomb, there is no other way to describe what he does as he weeps and snorts with anger, but that he grieves. Grieving is fine. But the distinction is, even in our grief, we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope that the resurrection is real and that our resurrection is real, that there is life after death, that this is not it, that what we see here, we only see the truth of eternity dimly. That's why we have hope. And so even as we grieve, we do so with a sense of relief ahead. And here's Paul's reasons for why. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Well... If you have spent time in certain church traditions in especially America, it seems to be very, very common in America, then you have probably heard that this passage teaches what is commonly known as the rapture. Now, it is true that in Latin, which was one of the, I mean, really the most common translation of the scriptures for quite some time, that in Latin, the word raptura is in this passage. It literally is the word for caught up. That's true. But even though we can acknowledge the word rapture is in this passage in the Latin translation uh, for the words caught up, um, it does not mean there what it has come to mean in certain traditions. Certain traditions have taught, and it's very common, if you've read the Left Behind series, then you've come across it before, or if you've seen the movies, I guess. I mean, there's, it's very common. Certain traditions teach that before the actual second coming of Jesus, there will be a sort of a first coming, almost like a secret coming of Jesus, in which he's going to catch up those who are alive in him and bring them up to heaven with him. And then 
depending on one's point of view, either seven years later, after seven years of tribulation, uh, Jesus will come back with those who have been raptured and will finally come to judge the living and the dead. That's his true second coming. Some people say it's in the middle of the tribulation when the rapture takes place. And then uh, after three and a half years, there'll be, you know, there's different views about this. But basically, the idea is, is that there's basically kind of three, two and a half comings of Christ. There's his first coming. There's the rapture, which is sort of the half coming. And then there's the true second coming, right? That's the idea behind it. Um, what I'm going to try and show you today is, in fact, in the context here and in the context of the rest of Scripture, that's not what this passage is teaching at all. As a matter of fact, my contention is this is all about the actual second coming. Now, here's why I say that. The, the language here that is used to describe what is happening is of Jesus coming down to earth with his angelic host and his saints. He is coming down to earth to renew the earth. Remember the picture in the book of Revelation is that heaven comes down to earth. Now, oftentimes what we think about is we think Jesus is taking us up there to the heavens. But in fact, Jesus is coming down to renew all things. Now, here's the picture here. If you go to places like Psalm 24, and, and frankly, many other spots in the Old Testament, but Psalm 24 is a great example, you are going to see there a sort of liturgy of a king's entrance back into his holy city or to his city upon usually arriving from battle. And what would happen? Well, if you go back to uh, that psalm, you're going to see basically that as the king approaches the city, the watchmen, the watchmen on the walls of the city ask who approaches, who are you? And in reply, the king says, it is the king of glory. Now, what happens when the king comes back in ancient contexts? What would happen when the king would come back into the city? Well, what would happen is the king with whoever he was with would stand outside the gate and basically demand entrance. And when the people realized that it was their king, then they wouldn't wait for him to come into the city. No, they would rush out to him and then walk into the city together. That's what would happen. Now, Put that in combination with what you read here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul says, not only will Jesus, as he's coming again, raise the dead out from the city they're in, quote unquote, the habitation they're in, but also we who are alive, we're all going to meet him as he comes to inhabit his true and better holy city in victory. That's the big idea here. This really isn't teaching some sort of secret rapture event or a separate rapture event. No, this is teaching the true second coming of Christ. This is All this is saying is that we're going to come out to him. He's going to draw us out to him. And then we're going to come in triumphantly with him into his new heavens and new earth. That's the picture being created for us. Again, it's always easy and very dangerous, frankly, to isolate a passage and from that passage, taking it out of the rest of the context of scripture, to take that passage and then build a doctrine from it. But we always wanna build doctrine 
from all of Scripture. Now, obviously, I've given you my point of view on this, that this is about the return of the king, the real return of the king. But I also want to be charitable to those who do believe in this secret rapture. I don't think that they're heterodox. I don't think that they're heretics. I don't think that they're evil. I don't know. We know that the, if there's anywhere where there's lots of debate and lots of legitimate people within Christendom that disagree, it's about the, the discussion of the end times. And so I want to be charitable to those who have a different perspective here and acknowledge that we are all brothers and sisters in the Lord. That said, I've given you my view with, I think, some exegetical backing for it and some historical backing for it, and, uh, and I hope that that is helpful. Lastly, why does this matter for us on a day like today, on a day where we elect a new leader in our, uh, for our country as a president and new senators and, or senators that will come back, who knows, you know, and representatives and all that stuff, why does this all matter? Because to the degree that you focus your mind on your true and better king, that will be the degree to which you can handle whatever comes your way today or tomorrow or the next day. Your true and better king is on the throne, and he's not going to be surprised by what takes place today. I can assure you he is not sitting up in the courtroom of heaven going, oh. no, no, he knows he knows his creation. He knows what he's doing. He's got a story that he's writing. And he's in the process of finishing that story. Remember, right now, we're in the last days. Our true and better king is coming. And that is where we find our hope. And so I would just ask you to refocus your attention. I know, I know, you'll have plenty of time tonight to hand ring and, you know, watch the results come in if you're a political junkie like me. Fine. But in the meantime, and even then, reset your hope on the king that is coming, that we'll meet in the air to go inhabit his holy city together. In other words, Paul says at the end, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. All right, that's all I got for you today, folks. That's as election-y as I'm going to get with you. I hope you have a blessed day. I hope you, uh, you are filled with peace and joy and thanksgiving over the return of your true king coming soon. In Jesus' name, amen.